Welcome to Tech Travels, hosted by the seasoned tech enthusiast and industry expert, Steve Woodard. With over 25 years of experience and a track record of collaborating with the brightest minds in technology, Steve is your seasoned guide through the ever-evolving world of innovation. Join us as we embark on an insightful journey exploring the past, present, and future of tech under Steve's expert guidance. Hey there, tech enthusiast. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of Tech Travels. Today, we're joined by the accomplished Dr. Alan Badeau. Dr. Alan Badeau is a leading professional in blockchain and artificial intelligence technologies. He has a PhD in mechanical engineering and over two decades of experience. He's also the CEO of Alan Badeau LLC, where they specialize in artificial intelligence, blockchain, quantum computing, and other advanced technical solutions. Today, we're going to dive into a couple of different topics. We're going to talk about Web3, blockchain, metaverse, and tech entrepreneurship. So, Alan, thank you so very much for being on the show today. Really looking forward to our discussion. Before we begin, I want to start with a quote from a book called Blockchain 2035, where it says, the blockchain stands to be among the most fundamental technological, sociological, and political innovation of the current era. It's going to transform news, entertainment, gaming, and even our own financial institutions. So for those who might be less familiar, could you provide a brief overview as to what blockchain is and really yeah, what and its I, fundamental I, properties I like are? Quote. Um, when you think about blockchain and you know, everybody goes immediately to cryptocurrency, right? And, um, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, facet from an opinion perspective. And so a lot of people don't realize really what it really is. If you think about it, it's, it's fundamentally, it's a, you know, a distributed ledger, right? And it's really what you're trying to do is, uh, you know, enable the recording of some transaction or some event that takes place in a really secure, very transparent, uh, you know, um, you know, way. And and what it allows you to do is, is you know, as these activities take place, they put it on, you know, quote unquote, a a block. That block gets submitted into uh, the chain, and then it gets, um, you know, broken down from there and validated and verified and and those sort of things. And there's a whole bunch of different characteristics around blockchain, you know, whether it's decentralized or, uh, you know, centralized, meaning, you know, that uh, central authority, you know, a bank or something like that could control it or one, you know, one entity that uh, is mining it potentially. But, um, you know, there are, you know, at the end of the day, that's what you're, that's what you're trying to do. And you're trying to you know, utilize that kind of technology so you can track the events so everybody can see what's going on. And that goes on not just for cryptocurrencies, but really from smart contracts all the way through uh, supply chain management. And then, uh, you know, some some folks are even starting to look at it for voting and, uh, you know, other types of, uh, you know, transactional events that, that take place that that really fundamentally could reshape how things are going. 
So, so it seems, and you're right, I, I think I recall it, it was, people had theorized that it was started really right around 1991, and then it really started to kind of gain more of the mainstream emergence right around 2008. I think it was, you know, the catalyst that really kind of pushed blockchain into kind of more of the ethos was the the, the white paper from Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm -hmm. uh, in, your in your opinion, what was kind of like the tipping point that really kind of pushed blockchain from kind of a um, early cyberpunk type of technology into something where people started to use it as an actual platform for real world applications what was that moment well you know i think the general public's moment was right around the, the housing crisis in 2008 i mean people people got scared um they started looking for uh alternative means of you know holding uh you know some sort of asset that would you know allow them to be prepared for the next time something like that took place and you know, there, there are a whole bunch of different, you know, financial implications. Uh, we've seen that where, uh, you know, blockchain would, you know, have a, a great return on, as an asset and it would outperform the stock market or, or even gold, you know, from that, uh, from that perspective. But it really, you know, is, you know, I, I would say that, you know, as, as folks started to realize or, or you know, in some cases started to lose faith in certain institutions. They wanted another way that they could be prepared for, um, you know, those rainy day events that take place. So which came first? Was it the blockchain that came first or was it kind of the emergence of kind of more of an, an alternative to fiat currency? Was it the crypt? Was it the emergence of Bitcoin or was it both? I think it was both. I think it was both. I, um, you know, it was one of those, you know, in 2008, we were still, you know, in a uh, really coming out of an AI winter, you know, um, quantum had not really started to take off yet. Blockchain to most people was a brand new technology. It was one of those activities where, you know, you, you could see some of the real world implications around that from video games all the way through the things that you had mentioned. And then, you know, the, the perfect storm of events you know, really hit and that allowed us to, you know, um, allowed uh, Bitcoin really to, to take off and, you know, the 9,000 plus different, you know, alternative coins that are out there today. I mean, you can, you can see the, the snowball effect that took place. It's incredible the explosion it's received over the last very last couple of years, and and a lot of it's been. It seems like it's kind of you know both in both the economic sense and political sense, it's been very controversial, right? It, you know, yeah. Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, they're all bad. They're 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 all ways for kind of illicit activity to happen. But you know, as we as we're starting to see, we're starting to see a huge paradigm shift towards mainstream adoption. Most financial institutions, even the big you know um, the big companies like BlackRock. Um, uh, grayscale, they're all starting to kind of push for more of this type of adoption and even from the industry. So what are you seeing from, from kind of from, from where you sit and, and from being a, from an industry recognized leader uh, on, on kind of how you're evangelizing a blockchain for more of a progressive, positive evolvement into our ethos? Yeah. And, and the challenge is, is, you know, every time we seem to be gathering some momentum, uh, we, we as a, I would say, as a, a community, somehow mess up. 
you have the FTX issue when, of course, you know, it was really, you know, really starting to gain a foothold and the interest was there. And then, you know, and you had so much venture capitalist and, you know, private investment that was taking place. It was really a, you know, a great time to look at those things. And then, you know, unfortunately, you know, there are those negative consequences and, you know, with any sort of technology, you, you lose faith or the, the public loses faith very quickly. You know, you, you went from folks thinking about using X, Y, and Z, um, you know, uh, currency to, oh, now, now we don't want anything to deal with it and, or anything to do with it. And that's, that's always going to be an issue with, with blockchain until it really starts to, to gain a little bit of a, a foothold. But then you see, you know, countries, you know, you know, like Venezuela and some of those others that are making a huge investment in uh, Bitcoin. And I think it was two weeks ago that they just uh, broke even and now they're they're up and, you know, in what their investment was. And, you know, I think from a general public, that's not as important. But I think from folks that are are really following it, it is important because it's starting to it's starting to, uh, you know, turn around. But, you know, I think from my perspective, you know, the the key with with blockchain or distributed ledgers is looking and seeing how it can be applied to other other areas, much like AI uh, and even generative AI. You know, the, the 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 public loses interest very quickly if it's only got a singular application. And I think from you know uh, blockchain and AI perspective, as you start to see these technologies converge to solve certain problems, whether it's, uh, you know, identity management, whether it's supply chain, whether it's, you know, fraud, you know, that's when I think the technology is really going to, to be embraced. Um, but at the same time, folks are still worried about it. And, you know, I hear this all the time about, you know, a, a, uh, a digital dollar, right. And, you know, the, the issue with that is, is, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of folks don't want to have every single one of their purchases or what they do with their quote unquote digital dollar be tracked by, you know, um, the government. And so they're, you know, as we're progressing to more advanced and more acceptance, then, you know, others start to want to pull the, uh, the covers back because now they're, they're getting concerned about big brother becoming, you know, uh, too involved. So it's, it's a really, it's a delicate balance that's, that's gotta take place. Otherwise, you know, it's going to go one way or the other. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that, um, going all in for a digital currency is a, a great move, but looking at going all in on, you know, supply chain or contracts or those kind of things is a great idea. So it's a, it's a really delicate balance. It really is, and I and I want to kind of dive into the, the the smart contract with inside the business ethos, the kind of the application of a smart contract. Can you kind of help us understand, really, just at a simple term, like really, what is a smart contract, and what does it mean that you, uh, when someone says you're executing a smart contract on a blockchain, what does that really mean? Yeah, it's really where you know it's a it's a self executing contract that you know has terms that are directly. Uh, written into that block specifically. And so it's, you know, automatically enforced, um, you know, and it can be, it, well, it will be automatically executed when, 
you know, whatever the terms of that, uh, that uh, contract are, are met. So if you have, for instance, a house, um, you know, and your, your deed is, uh, you know, owned uh, through the bank and those kind of things, then that all can be traced and tracked and everything is on the block. And you don't have to worry about someone coming in, somebody coming in and swooping in and saying, oh, well, I have this deed and X, Y, Z deed and, you know, uh, um, you know, all the fraud that, that takes place, you know, today and whether it's squatters and the legal issues around that, you know, it would prevent a lot of those kind of things. And it works from uh, procurement, uh, you know, to uh, deeds and housing, as I said, to other, you know, legal type of uh, documents. So it provides almost like almost like a cryptographic type of digital signature. That's exactly right. Right. That that really can't be changed. It can't be altered. Um, I, I think I recall seeing a commercial. I know that some of the big retail houses, Breitling, Rolex, uh, even more of your big fashion houses are now able to offer when you purchase these products, they're they're offered they're offering you kind of a, a an NFT or some sort of digital signature that can be registered on the blockchain. Um this is huge because this is something incredible where you didn't see this before. Now you start to see this, this mainstream adoption with everyday things from wearables to watches. Um, you know, is, is this kind of the, the, the mainstream wave that we start to see? Is this kind of that big push and moving and evolute, evolving the, the, uh, the blockchain? I think, I think so. I think this is the start of it. And I think where the precipice is really going to hit is, I don't know about you, but I'm really tired of getting, uh, you know, letters from different agencies that I either have credit cards with or I have accounts with that my information has been hacked or, you know, and stolen. Um, I think the next big push is really going to be around citizens taking back their digital identity and their digital footprint. And the only way that you really can do that is through, you know, some sort of, um, you know, blockchain type event. And this is interesting because it really kind of starts leading into the whole concept around Web 3.0. That's right. Right. It's right. Kind of walk walk us through with the evolution from what is Web 1? How do we get to where are we Web 2 today? What is what, what's the progression? Where where did we start? Well, <laughs> um, you know, that's a that's a good that's a good question, because, you know, as you. As we have evolved in what we and how we are, you know, really connecting, you know, Web 1 was really, I'd say, up into the early 2000s, and it was really what you would call the, the, the static web, where you'd look for content, you'd read it, there was very little interactions. I think folks remember a lot of those things, basic, very basic, um, you know, HTML-type sites and... You know, I think uh, probably one of the best ones would have been like, you know, some some personal websites that folks have that looked like a resume, right? And then, you know, Web2 really started to evolve and allow a lot of different type of, uh, you know, new features. And, and, and really the best example around that is around all the interaction in the social media sites, you know, that are out there today. The goal always being to, you know... Um, allow some sort of creation that was more uh, interaction. And at the same time, you may be able to monetize some of those things and, you know, do something around those types of, um, you know, business models, that, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I think Facebook probably led that well with MySpace technically, you know, but 
Facebook is still around, right? But, you know, I think those those folks were were the ones that were, you know, blazing some of those trails with, um, you know, with Google and then YouTube helped with the, the video type of thing. And so that's really still the the mainstream today for the most part but as we as we start looking at web 3.0 that's when we're starting to look at you know what folks are calling the semantic web and and that's trying to get something that's more intelligent uh, more technology capable but at the same time you're you're taking data it's 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 connected in a way that you know humans and machines can interact more appropriately things are decentralized uh you know ai plays a is going to play a huge role around that as well as you know what that you know that uh, metaverse type sphere is is going to look like but at the end of the day it's really trying to to get data use data more efficiently uh, make things more interoperable but at the same time safety and security um, is, is really at the, at the forefront of, of what they're trying to do. How far do you, away do you think we are from full web three adoption? Well, I think, I think it's, it's, it's like any other, any other technology. A lot of it is going to be driven by the users and the demands of, of the users. Now, techies, I, I think are you know, really screaming for it and they, they want to use it. They, they understand fundamentally what it can do and how it can do it and the security and the great features around that. But the general public, you know, really doesn't, they don't care right now. And, you know, I think we're starting to see a little bit of momentum. People are saying, you know, just, just like I mentioned earlier, they're tired of their information being stolen. Well, how can, how can they fix that? And, you know, um, they're tired of all their information being tracked no matter where they go and, and, and what they do. And, and, you know, they don't understand that there's a technology out there that today that can help, uh, you know, prevent that and provide them, uh, you know, some security that they're, that they're looking for. So, you know, I would say probably three to five years is when it's really going to, to start to, um, you know, propagate throughout a whole bunch of uh, of other sites. You can see it now when you're starting to build a website or you're starting to, you know, or you have a website and you want to offer some sort of credentialing method, you know, a web 3.0 um, capability is, is usually offered in there. But most people think, oh, I've never heard of that. I'm not going to do something like that. And so uh, it's, 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 it's going to be slow, but I think we'll get there eventually. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see it. Yeah, I, I really, I really hope it's going to be within the next five years. I want to dovetail back into the uh, t topic around blockchain. Uh, you, you know, you you hear so much in the news that there are all the different, you know, Bitcoin miners and Ethereum miners. They're all basically mining. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got companies like Riot. You've got companies like Hive. Um, you know, Marathon. All of these companies that are building vast amounts of infrastructure with vast computing power. Yep. And I wonder, you know, really, as you start to kind of build out this infrastructure that's going to basically run the blockchain, I wonder, you know, what are we starting to see its impact on environmental sustainability? I mean, how does it really impact renewable energies and green initiatives? Well, I mean, you know, there, there's a couple of ways, ways that you can look at it. Um, you know, you hope that it at least balances out 
that the positive impacts of trying to validate blocks, um, you know, on these chains outweighs some of the, you know, aspects of you've got a lot of computers that are running, they're putting off heat, they're sucking up water, and they're taking a lot of energy. And, you know, I don't know if I have seen a study that says one way or the other, when they look at it purely from a technical perspective, let's let's take the emotional aspects out of it, but, but purely from a technical perspective, you know, if, um, you know, that, uh, that, that crunching that goes on with those numbers, you know, is at least neutral with the environmental impacts that are, that are taking place. But, you know, here's the other thing though. It's not just, it's not just blockchain. You know, you've got AI, uh, starting to dominate some of these, uh, you know, discussions as well and how much water they're taking and, you know, how much it takes to run these GPUs and, and those kind of things. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to put the sole blame on uh, blockchain by any stretch of the imagination, but it does have some sort of impact, but, you know, actually being able to quantify that, um, you know, I can't do that. I haven't seen a study that does that, at least to, to my knowledge as, uh, as of today. Interesting. I, I know you mentioned AI. I mean, let's, I mean, let's kind of, let's think of it this way is, um, all of these resources that we're creating like AI and blockchain, they're all probably consuming some sort of uh, computing power and that's kind of putting off some sort of uh, carbon footprint at some point. Yep. What about, you know, talk to me a little bit about quantum computing. I know, I know quantum computers are able to perform serious amounts of calculations faster than modern computers. They're using a math based type of encryption. Um, and, And it really presents the, and it, and people are saying, well, you know, quantum computing, um, it's really going to start to look at breaking certain vulnerabilities uh, within things like AS-256. Mm-hmm. So my question is, is will quantum computing destroy blockchain or is it going to make it more secure? I think there's two ways that you can look at it. If you uh, don't like blockchain in the first place, I think you're going to you're going to be on the side that says it can it's it's going to destroy it and it's not uh, it's not worth it. There are um, at least as of today, you know, certain algorithms that folks say are are, um, you know, quantum resistance when it uh, when it comes to certain types of blockchain. I don't I haven't personally played around with those or tried to break them or those kind of things. But, um, you know. There, there at least is some some literature out there that says that's a, a a capability. Now, what I would say from you know a technology perspective, and it really this is where that third part of what I like to call the the golden triangle starts to come into play. When you take the fundamental capabilities of distributed ledgers, and you combine those with the calculating power of a quantum computer and then tie AI into that, that's when you start to get, um, you know, really some spectacular capabilities with that convergence of those three technologies. And, you know, from my perspective, when you put those together, I think some of the problems that we will be able to solve from traffic to supply chain to, you know, some of the healthcare things that are out there, I think fundamentally, it, it, it's it's really all three of those that um, you know combined that will will lead to some spectacular discoveries that uh, 
far outweigh the the negative uh, aspects of one over the other versus the other. I mean, we've looked at we've looked at using you know, for instance, combining blockchain uh, with AI to um, you know really secure both the front end with some of the models and the data that goes along with that. And then you start to look at quantum computing because, you know, quantum computers are not going to be able to solve your everyday problems for the most part. You're not going to run a, a word processor. You're not going to run certain other, you know, applications on a quantum computer. And so it's, it's, it's more limited in what it's, uh, what it's true impactful, um, you know, uh, results will be for the normal person other than, Hey, maybe you don't have as much traffic, uh, or there's an optimized traffic route, for instance, or they set the lights finally so that you can go from, you know, your house to, you know, five miles and it's consistently green throughout the way. Right. I mean, those are the kind of, you know, uh, real world applications that quantum computers can solve. But as you start to stack those together, it really becomes more important. Have we been able to combine all three? It seems like that's the trifecta. It's blockchain, it's AI, it's quantum computing. I mean, are we starting to see, you know, um, anybody, anybody out there currently in the innovation space or anyone kind of leading the charge that's been able to find the magic to combine all three of these to solve a real problem? So it's more, it's more bits and pieces of all three of them. And so, for instance, some of the things that I've done, you know, I've looked at applying... Um, you know, all three of them and, and really from a quantum computing perspective, we, we have to talk about not to get too technical, but really, you know, there's three different types of quantum computing and we're, we're using what's called quantum annealing type activities, but we're applying bits and pieces of all three of those to fraud and trying to be able to identify fraudulent activities that take place either, for instance, on, on a blockchain or um, you know, potentially using blockchain to find those for, uh, you know, different activities that are taking place on the web or other types of, uh, you know, fraudulent things, whether it's transactional, whether it's, uh, um, you know, some of the other things that it can be used for. That's really the biggest area where folks are using, you know, some of those things outside of the, outside of the military. In the military, there are of course, other applications that are being used, but um, you know, I really, I, I, I won't go into those uh, on 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 here. No, I mean, I, I I completely agree. I know that there's been some. I know by in years past, there's been some controversy. I know, you know, um, for for year, a couple of years ago, is um, Google was uh, using some sort of machine learning to help sort out uh, and, and basically kind of uh, image classify yep. uh, drone images. Yeah, they're just they're too many images that a human being cannot possibly consume. So they they were applying machine learning. That's right. Part to of be Maven. able to kind of look for, yeah, Maven, uh, and that got a little bit of some um, attention on the on the news and it seemed to kind of you know kind of hey we're gonna from a google's perspective we're gonna pull back a little bit uh on that now i i don't want to dive into it too deep but um from a government approach um you know within not just from the the private sector but into the public sphere with um you know certain government agencies you know even within our government is you know you know is there starting to be kind of more of an appetite for blockchain and ai adoption seems like everywhere we look there's ai everywhere in the commercial space from your phone to computer to tv but what about elements of our government are we starting to see a shift where 
we see some appetite for this? Well, I think from a blockchain perspective, you know, they came out hot and heavy right around 2011, 2012. And that's when they were using, or at least doing some, um, you know, investigations around Hyperledger and how they could use Hyperledger to do procurement tracking and, and those kind of things. A lot of that died down and is almost non-existent, you know, now. And really unfortunate because now with the utilization of, of AI or the desire, I should say, to utilize, you know, AI, then blockchain is one of those areas that really could help, um, you know, secure the data and all those other, um, you know, government initiatives that are important to them. If you look at, um, you know, uh, an SBOM, right, when you are developing an application, the federal government has a lot of requirements around that and being able to track who developed the software, where it was developed, you know, yada, 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 all the way down the line is very important. Blockchain would be able to, you know, help facilitate that. Even on the AI, where they get the data, how they use the data, how the data is trained in the a DOD model, for example, very important, um, you know, to be able to to track it from its, its initial source so it's not poisoned data, right? And so... Um, you know, there are very few that are looking at that uh, today, but they're doing some they're doing some advanced stuff on the DOD side, which is which is, you know, fantastic. But there are so many other places and areas that it can be used. Now, you know, ChatGPT, of course, blew up everything. But the problem is, is on the government side, when you start looking at the security um, regulations of putting these systems on or these models on government systems it's not that easy actually it's really hard and you know uh security by um you know their nature they usually say no to a lot of things and you know when you start to see releases that come out from you know folks like gsa or the air force or, or some of those other big agencies that say don't use the large language models. Uh, don't put them on government systems yet because we're not quite sure what it does. You know, that's uh, that's not unusual. And so usually the federal government is, you know, three, four, five years behind when it comes to getting a hold of some of these technologies that, uh, that the everyday person working uh, in the government can use. I think I heard that basically is that the uh, certain certain government agencies are still probably using fax machines, floppy disks, <laughs> something well, like that, right? Well, that part is true. And if you look at it, the uh, the largest code base still in the federal government is COBOL. I think there's uh, almost 40 billion lines of COBOL that is still in operational use today. Is there any is there any plan that we're ever going to be able to kind of start to see a, a more of a push towards more of adoption within the government space? I mean, do we think it's possible that it might happen? Do we th we think that there might be kind of a secondary revolution with that? But what do we think it's going to take? Yeah, I think it. I think it's it's going to happen, and I think you know, uh, I think Microsoft is is really leading the way. I mean, you know, uh, Office three sixty five is everywhere inside of the federal government, and with you know, really the <clears throat> the integration of Copilot in with Office 365, that's going to drive a lot of, of that because now people want to use what they have at home and they want to be able to go in the office and be able to use it. And if they can't go into the office, um, they want to stay remote so they can continue to use some of those things uh, on their personal devices. And so it's really 
um, it's going to happen, how quickly it happens. And, um, you know, there are some, uh, some pilots going on today inside of the DOD as well as the civilian agencies looking at that. It's just these things, these things really take time. Um, they have so many different uh, accreditation and, and processes that they that they have to go through. Um, you know, it just it just does take an, an awful lot of time. And I, I will say this from a, a large language model perspective, you know, I've demonstrated to a lot of government agencies and even commercial clients that you don't have to be in a rush because if you do it wrong, um, it's going to get access to something that you probably don't want it to have access to. And it's going to cause you an awful lot of pain. So, you know, get your ducks in a row and then uh, then deploy it. And I think the, the government is just by nature going to do that. So they're not, they're not going to jump the gun, but maybe they'll be a little bit slower than a lot of folks would like. But, but that's kind of normal. Yeah, it seems like that. It seems like that's kind of the natural evolution of of, of how government uh, it takes a while to adopt technology, but at the end they do come around. It's, so it's good. I mean, it sounds like it, there are some positive keynotes to take away from that. So, you know, let's transition our, and, and really want to talk about um, you know getting your insights into kind of the tech entrepreneurship and the innovation space. Tell me a little bit about tell me a little bit about your journey in the tech industry and, and talk about some of the experiences uh, around kind of how you're talking to other startups around emerging trends and transformational technologies. Yeah, it's 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 been an interesting uh, journey. If you look at my background, you know, I I started out with you know getting my PhD in computational fluid dynamics, and then I went to work for the CDC, and then uh, you know became a federal contractor. But there were always ideas that that I would have, and you know, let's you know, let's spend a little bit of time, you know, outside of my normal activities, and let's see what we can do. And so that led to, you know, starting a consulting company where, you know, I helped, uh, you know, use that kind of technology for uh, Newell Rubbermaid and helping, you know, apply you know, some things that I learned actually in the Department of Defense toward a, a mop bucket and believe it or not, got a, uh, a patent with them. And, you know, the wave break mop bucket, uh, you know, I helped do some of the simulations on it and the design very early, very early on, a lot of fun, right? And so trying to trying to take these, these technologies and apply them in a commercial way to areas that have never, um, you know, folks have never even thought of is something that I, I think is, um, is a lot of fun. And what I tell people, especially with, with AI today, you know, I try to describe it as, that, as though that now you have a tool that, um, you know, you really can apply everywhere um, and for any type of business that you, um, you want to start. The only thing that you have to do is have an idea, you know, and, and the best way to, to think about it is, you know, I'm probably the worst artist um, you know, I, I, I won't say necessarily in the world, but I would probably be in the top five. I'm a, I'm a stick figure kind of guy, unless it's an engineering diagram, but I have some very interesting, um, you know, you know, ideas and visions when it comes to, to art, but I can't, I can't paint, but guess what? Now I have a tool that if I can describe what I want, it will do it for me. And it's the exact same thing from a business perspective. If you have an idea 
but you don't know how to start a business, then you say, you know, you can go out to, to one of the, um, the models. There's 140 of them, 148, I think available as of today. You can go out to any one of those and say, write me a business plan. Help me develop what a, a roadmap looks like. All the things that you need to do from a, an administrative perspective can be handled by AI. So you can actually focus on maturing your idea, your widget, whatever that's going to be, and really uh, you know, attack the, the marketplace. At no other time have we, uh, you know, in human history, have we had such power to go out and start something you know, on our own with the aid of, you know, of, uh, you know, it could be a, you know, think about it as a lawyer that can help you think about it as a, a banker that can help you, um, get financing, you know, all that stuff is, is now at people's fingertips. If they would just embrace it and try it and use it for something other than, you know, write me a joke or write me a poem or, or something like that, then, uh, um, you know, there, there, there are huge opportunities. And that's, that's really what I am trying to, to get out there for folks is that try it, use it, use it in ways that you've never thought of, use it in ways that you've, uh, or things that you've never done before. And when you get familiar with the technology, that's when uh, the power really kicks in. Yeah, it seems like it really serves as, as an accelerator for people who really want to basically have an idea. They want to be able to pursue self-entrepreneurship. Um, and it really does kind of help level the playing field because now you don't need to assemble a full team. You don't have to kind of work to build your own startup. You can be your own independent startup as a one-person show, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah I mean, what's what's amazing is, is uh, you know, I left my previous job in early summer, um, started the con my my consulting company and um also started a software company and um myself my partner and uh my ai my own large language model that i trained to do some software development we have developed together a ton of code that will uh will be releasing soon but i mean it's it's that kind of capability you know you really have a a uh um, you know, an edge if you're not afraid to use it because it can scale what your your capabilities are so far beyond what you can what you can comprehend that um, you know if if you don't use it, your competitor is using it, and that's where that's a problem. So what's your what's your advice for you, you know aspiring entrepreneurs looking to get out there? Well, the biggest question that I actually get at these, um, you know, conferences, you know, outside of the, the ethics and the, the security pieces around, you know, is it going to take my job? Is AI going to replace me? And my, my response to folks right now is, is that, uh, you know, AI is not going to replace you, but somebody that knows how to use the AI will. And so what I tell people is, is that, you know, it doesn't matter what your age is. This is a tool that is really age agnostic as long as you know how to use a, a computer or a phone or something like that to, you know, try something that is small first, meaning, hey, go in and filter my email and, you know, if I get something from, you know, Judy uh, to, to put it into um, the spam, right? Something like that. Try something very easy and then expand on, on what those those capabilities are because 
Um, you know, like I said earlier, the the folks that are going to lose out are the ones that are refusing to try it because they think that they can do it better. Um, the reality is, is, you know, you may be able to do it better, but if I can do it faster and it's maybe not, you know, quite as good as you, but maybe a, maybe a notch down, um, you know, I can put a business out of, uh, existence with that kind of capability because we've all seen, you know, most of the time, first, the market is, is very important. Getting the word out, very important. Keeping the word out, very important. And uh, having AI do that just just scales exponentially what your workforce becomes. And so um, folks that ignore it, they're, they're going to be in a world of hurt soon. Yeah. But I think I think overall, I think it's going to have it's really going to have a positive impact, right? I think you know you have disruptive across the board. Yeah, you know you've got disruptive technologies that kind of move and displace people, uh, but it also starts to you know starts to present and emerge a new set of leaders and innovators, um, and, and people who can really think and use the technologies and pair those together. I think that's the superpower, right? Yep. Yeah, and that's that's the fun thing because I've seen the dynamics of. Um, institutions that allow their workforce to use AI um, and institutions that, that do not. Um, you know, overall, I would say, you know, on average, those that are using the tool are, are really scaling what their workforce can do. And you are taking somebody that may be excellent at their job, but now they are excellent and they are extraordinarily fast. And that combination is is really scary but then from a manager perspective at the same time being able to manage a a workforce is not easy right but now you're combining what i'm calling a digital workforce in that management chain as well and so you have to you have to be able to manage that kind of uh relationship and and you know most people aren't prepared for something like that and that takes a lot of time that takes uh, an ability to to use the tool, a manager that's willing to play with it, understand it, and then understand the dynamics of what his team and their attitudes are. Because if you're an introvert and you've got AI, the problem is is now you want to ask 50 different you know Chat GPTs or versions of Chat GPT because you want to just reinforce what that position is. But if you are um, not that way and you are more of a um i guess i would say yeah yeah we there's a lot of different ways to classify that person that you know is has a a very strong opinion about something but when you give them ai that just bolsters their confidence and their ego and it's uh you know then they and i've seen it where some of the folks have become a little bit of uh, of a bully and dominate the discussions and those kind of things and so again it goes back to being able to manage uh, a new workforce that is granted mm -hmm. it's better it's scalable but it is now uh emotionally different than what folks are are used to to seeing interesting so so real quick and, and kind of we'll, and as we wrap up here is kind of give us you know your insights and expertise and give us a five-year prediction on kind of what you foresee kind of how we start to wrap around this new world of blockchain metaverse AI, virtual reality, cryptocurrency, kind of like what's what's kind of the real real vision you start to see pan out in the next five years? Yeah, I think I think folks are gonna realize that technology is just a technology. And unless 
people feel comfortable with it. They, they have a, a good experience with it. And it is, I guess what I would, what I would say, uh, personally rewarding in some fashion, uh, you know, I think these technologies or these algorithms are just going to fall by the wayside. I think it's going to be folks that focus on the user experience, the, um, that, that relationship between human and AI or human and how it can apply to, to blockchain, uh, is going to start to dominate. And I think that's where, that's where we will start to see more, uh, investment and more research dollars and more venture capitalist dollars as we, as we move forward, because, you know, we've seen how fast things are changing today. You know, you're, you're getting a new, uh, uh, methodology for, um, you know, these, uh, generative models just about every single day. And if you only focus on one, you're in trouble because one day you're flying high, the next day you're out of business and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next. Right. That's how quickly these things are changing. But if you are consistently focusing on the experience of your customers, then all these become plug and play. How can I use this now with what I'm doing? How can I use this to make, make my, my customers' lives uh, uh, better, easier, more transparent, those kind of things? That's where I think we'll be in three to five years. And when you start to combine VR with the metaverse, with AI, with the digital experience, and then that relationship, that is an exceptionally strong um uh, you know, uh, uh, story that I think is going to really start to dominate. Incredible. It definitely is a, it, it is a, it is an incredible world that we're about to embrace. Uh, I'm very excited for the journey. Um, and it seems like there's a limitless amount of possibilities, both just with, from the technology side, from all the applications that are going to impact the end user experience from like things like hotel check-in to how self-automated cars. I mean, I can go on and on, but I, right. I, I think that it's an incredible journey. I think we're just starting to see just the first wave of that happening. You know, it's, it's, it's coming, but, um, Alan, I want to express my sincere gratitude for you coming on Tech Travels today. Um, your insights on blockchain and entrepreneurship has really added immense value to our journey today. Um, and thank you for sharing us. We're very honored to have you on as a guest. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and for making this a very enriching episode for our listeners. We hope to have you back on. Yeah, I appreciate it, Steve. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks again, fellow travelers, for joining us on today's show. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate the show. Be sure to subscribe to the channel if you would like to be notified when new shows are posted. And if you want to share this show with your friends, please share on your preferred social media platform. I would love your help to bring awareness to this channel. You can follow me on Twitter at The Tech Channel. Join us next time as we venture into the future, into the realms of technology. Until then, stay curious, stay informed. Most of all, happy travels. Thanks so much for listening to the Tech Travels Podcast with Steve Woodard. Please tune in next time and be sure to follow us and subscribe on the Apple Podcast and Spotify platforms. We'll see you next time.